Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me as we continue. Father, what a needful reminder, what a, what a needful challenge we've, we've had this morning. It is so easy for us to confuse facts and faith. And the longer that we've claimed the name of Christ, even one of the great impediments of growing up in the church, growing up in Christian homes, is that it's very easy for us to adopt a kind of Christian perspective on life and to confuse that orientation with a true and a living, vital knowledge. It's so easy, Father, for us to be careless and flippant and complacent, well content with the things that we know, well content with the neat little package that we've got tied up, well content with our sense of assurance, well content with our sense of heaven laid up for us. I do pray, Father, that we would heed the exhortation that we've heard today and that we would be truly understanding what it means to wrestle with you, to be a contemplative, seeking, striving, wrestling people. I pray that you will... You will enable us to hear today what it is that you would have us hear. There are difficult things in what the writer has recorded for his readers, things that we really don't often want to hear. But I pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our minds. Father, that you would... Give me the freedom to say what needs to be said and to own these things as well as these to whom I speak. May your spirit be faithful with each one of us and according to our need, build us up in this most holy faith. We ask these things with the confidence it is ours in Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, I didn't know what Cliff was going to be bringing today, but it very much fits right in the path of where the writer has us in Hebrews. We saw last time how he takes all of this extensive treatment of Jesus' high priesthood and he brings it into a very focused series of exhortations. What Okay, that's all fine and good, but what do we do with this? What what do we do with this uh, great accomplishment of Christ 
and this priestly ministration that he continues to uh, uh, carry out on behalf of the world, on behalf of God's purposes. And last time we looked at this threefold exhortation that he issued, a very positive exhortation to draw near to God, to hold tightly to this intimacy that has been realized Not just simply approach God in prayer when we need something, but to actually live out this I in you, you in me reality that we are the dwelling of God in the spirit. And to recognize that that intimacy is grounded in the realization of the hope that Israel longed for through all of the centuries. God's promise to return, to restore, to dwell with his people in a new way, to renew the covenant, to bring forgiveness, cleansing, in gathering, and to recognize that even the fulfillment of that hope in the Messiah holds out the hope of the consummate realization to come when all things will be summed up in the Messiah. And then thirdly, because of that, because of what God has accomplished in the Messiah in building a people for himself, the not despising or, or, or neglecting what it is to live out this life of the body of Christ, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I don't even necessarily like that language because it simply gives us the impression in our culture of, okay, we need to go to church on Sunday. It really is the weaving together, the living out the reality that in Christ, God by his spirit has formed a new human organism and to live that out in truth, to live out the life of the body in truth. These Hebrews had inherited all that God had promised to their fathers. But with great privilege comes great responsibility, of whom much is given, much is required. And that is the premise behind the next section of this broad, diverse exhortation, which takes on a very negative or at least an ominous quality. If the former exhortations were, were very uh, encouraging and enthusiastic in a positive way, uh, this next one forms a kind of warning, very much as a warning. It's really the flip side of the other, that if the obligation, if the responsibility is to live out truthfully, faithfully, authentically, what has come through the priestly ministry of the Messiah, all of what that entails, all of what that implies, then it has a flip side, which is what are the consequences and implications of not living that out, of not heeding those exhortations to draw near, to hold fast to the hope, to to bind ourselves to one another in the way that is authentically consistent with who we are in Christ. And that's where the writer leads us today. So I'd like to read with you chapter 10, take us back to verse um, um, 19, just to again set the context, but considering today specifically verses 26 through 31. He says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, which is his own flesh. And having a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, the hope that we confess without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, the things that are consistent with new creation, the renewal that's come in the Messiah, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the ethic, the ethos of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, these Hebrews had a profound privilege as those upon whom the ends of the ages had come, as those who had come to know the Messiah and had embraced him in faith. They had an obligation, a responsibility to live that out. You know, Cliff discussed David's own faithfulness, and yet David was a man who lived in the context of shadows, looking through a fog dimly. And the writer will get to this even in the next chapter as he talks about all these who died in faith without receiving what was promised. They would not be made complete apart from us. David was a faithful man, but in the context of obscurity, partiality, preparation, shadows. And that's, again, an important point of comparison that the writer is going to draw out. The greater privilege that comes to those who are sharers in the resurrected Messiah brings a, that greater privilege means a greater responsibility a higher calling, a greater obligation, but also a greater accountability, a greater culpability. Of whom much is given, much is required. The point then being that failure of faith on the part of these Hebrews would bring greater guilt, greater condemnation than what their own Jewish ancestors had experienced. Of whom much is given, much is required. So I want to treat this under really just these two parts. The warning itself, what the, what the writer sets out as his warning to these readers, and then the way in which he shows the severity of it or the gravity of it, the ultimate significance of it. The warning itself is, is this. It's a warning against willful sin. But in what sense? In what sense? What is he talking about? 
What is this willful sin that he's warning about? Well, again, the three preceding exhortations form the backdrop for this. And so this focuses on the implication and the consequence of not carrying out what he's already said. In other words, departing from the truth, not just of what has come in the Messiah, but of what they had actually taken ownership of themselves. The one they had come to believe in. The one they had embraced. The one they had become disciples of. This warning, as I said, is the flip side of the three exhortations, the encouragement to live out authentically their new life in Jesus. So he's referring to a very specific sin, which is a willful, a conscious turning away from the truth of Jesus after embracing him in accordance with that truth. This is thematic throughout Hebrews. We already saw it in chapter 3 when he talked about Israel perishing in the wilderness, right? Be careful that this hardness of heart does not characterize you. Well, what sort of hardness of heart? An unbelieving heart that caused Israel to perish in the wilderness. We saw it in chapter 6 where he talked about pressing on from basics to this thing of growing up in the Messiah, And how the turning away, there is no more repentance from that. And he'll deal with it again in chapter 12. The issue then is not ignorance. It's not the unbelief of ignorance. It's informed unbelief. It's informed unbelief. It's like what Peter said when he said, that those who have, in a sense, escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of the Messiah and then become entangled and caught up in the world in the sense in which they have been delivered from that in the Messiah, he says this latter state is worse than the former state. It would be better never to have known the way of life than having known it to embrace it and then walk away from it. He said it's like a dog that returns to its vomit or the sow that after being washed returns to wallow in the mire. It's better not to know. It's better to be ignorant. And in the case of these Hebrews, it's more than simply people coming to understand the truth of the person in the work of the Messiah and saying, no, I really don't want anything to do with that. This is more than that because they are those, again, this warning comes on the heels of this exhortation. Draw near, live in this intimacy with God. Live in the light of the hope that you've already become sharers in and that looks to a consummation to come. And live out this new creation as it's been inaugurated in the Messiah in the way that you understand and relate to one another. They aren't just those who've understood the truth of the Messiah and said, no, no, thanks. They're those who have said, yes, they have embraced him. That's this idea of a, when he says, a a knowledge of the truth. It's the idea of, of a careful scrutiny, a careful scrutiny and assessment 
that results in embracing that. He's warning those who have assessed the Messiah, they have assessed Jesus as Israel's Messiah, as Jewish people, and said, yes, he is the Messiah, and they have embraced him. They have believed in him, and they have followed after him. And he's saying, be careful. Be careful. What he's warning about here is what we would call apostasy. Apostasy is wandering away. Apostasy doesn't apply to people who don't understand. Apostasy doesn't apply to people who have said, I understand and I'm not interested. Apostasy applies to those who are departing. It's what John said, they went out from us because they were never really of us, but they had to go out from us in order for us to understand and recognize that they were not of us. They appeared to be of us. And this apostasy, and I think in the case of these Hebrews, this certainly could very well apply, but this apostasy need not involve total renunciation. We all know people who say, yeah, I believe that for a while. You know, every day you see something on the internet about some church leader or pastor or prominent Christian who says, I no longer believe these things and and has completely walked away. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be entire renunciation. It can simply be a reimagining, a reshaping, a refashioning of the Messiah and the Messianic work and what it means to be a part of what God has accomplished in him and what God is in fact accomplishing towards the the, the consummative work that he has in mind. Reshaping, refashioning. Not simply outright renunciation, although it could involve that. Well, there is the warning, a warning against that kind of willful sin. And he says there's both a present consequence that needs to be understood and also a future consequence an ultimate consequence. The nature of the offense shows us or gives clarity into the, the, the meaning of the consequence. And the immediate consequence is what? There remains no sacrifice for sin. There remains no sacrifice from sin for sin. Again, the nature of the offense tells us how to understand that. His point is that departing from Jesus, not even necessarily whole cloth, but reshaping, reimagining, rethinking. Departing from him means departing from Israel's God. And again, I'm looking at this from the vantage point of these Hebrew readers. Because what they're being pressured to is they're being pressured with the idea that you have wandered from Israel's God. By returning to Judaism, by returning to Torah, by reclaiming your Jewish heritage in that way, you are returning to Israel's God. That was always the charge that was brought against Jesus, right? 
by those who were following him is that he was leading them away from Moses. He was leading them away from the prophets. He was leading them away from Israel's God. And these Hebrews needed to understand that departing from Jesus was departing from Israel's God. Because the God who said, I will arise, I will come, I will put all of this right, I will again dwell in your midst, I will cleanse you, I will purge you, I will liberate you, I will regather you, I will be in your midst. All of this prophetic promise of Yahweh's return to Zion is yes and amen in the Messiah. There is no knowledge of the God, the living God, that isn't in Jesus himself. Now that the Messiah has come. David understood messianic realities at a distance. He understood that God had promised to raise up one of his sons and sit him on the throne. But David had no conception that in the person of the Messiah would be Yahweh's return to Zion. The whole notion of incarnation was not on David's radar. Departing from Jesus meant departing from Israel's God, and departing from Israel's God would leave them without remedy. Turning away from the one in whom God has been God indeed, first to Israel, but for the sake of the world, the the God in whom there is forgiveness, reconciliation, the God in whom there is life, turning away from him leaves no answer to the problem of alienation and death. It's like a person who finds himself in the middle of the Sahara Desert, 500 miles from the nearest uh, uh, oasis or or water source, and and is offered a glass of water and says, no, I'm walking away from that for whatever reason. That person is walking to his own death. That's the sense in which there is no sacrifice for sin. It says nothing about the extent of the atonement or the intent of the atonement or anything like that. The issue is the singularity of, of the Christ event and the person of Christ. To not be found properly in relation to him is to be found with nothing. And I'm not going to go down this path, but this is important even in our day and age in, in, in our evangelism. Because everybody says, "Why? what's the big deal with this Jesus guy? You know, every religion has its holy book. Every religion has its religious and ethical and moral standards. And every, every religion has its avatar or its figurehead. And we don't know how to answer that. But when we understand that the true and the living God, his mind, his purpose, his, his very um, person, the truth is bound, of the living God is yes and amen in the Messiah. And even the, the, the outcome of that, that mind and purpose of God for the world is yes and amen in him. There is nothing outside of him. The statement underscores the singularity of the person in the work of Christ. There is no other remedy for human existence, for the human plight. However we understand that, however we want to define it or qualify it. So the present circumstance is that 
Again, for these Jews, the temptation is, you've missed it. You need to return over here. You've wandered from God. And he's saying, there's nothing to wander back to. Yes, Israel's history was important. Yes, the Israelite people were the elect of God for the sake of his purposes in the world. Yes, God was the God of Israel. But all of that has become yes and amen in the Messiah. And to try to wander back to what has been fulfilled in the Messiah. I mean, we've seen that even in terms of the the issue of the covenant. There is no Mosaic covenant to return to, not because it's been abrogated, but because it's been fulfilled in the Messiah. Jesus embodies in himself the truth of the covenant relation with God. He is the covenant of the people, the covenant of Israel and the covenant on behalf of the whole world. You can't go back to something that no longer stands, not because it was bad and God got rid of it, but because it's been fulfilled. Jesus didn't come to abrogate, but to fulfill. But there's also a future consequence associated with this. He says, all that remains is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And it's as simple as this, saints. Those who don't find life in Jesus don't find life. And the scripture understands life and death in terms of the human created purpose and destiny. To be human beings in the sense that God intended us to be, which is to be image bearers and image children, is to be characterized by the life that characterizes God himself. In him is life. He is life. And therefore, any deviation from that is to exist in this realm called death. It's not just mortality. It's a pseudo way of human existence that is human existence that isn't defined by God himself. That's what death is. And there is no life except sharing in Jesus' life. He doesn't give us life. He gathers us into himself. Just as he doesn't give us resurrection, we are raised up in him. He is resurrection. He is life. By sharing in him, we become truly the human creatures that God created us to be. And so those who don't find life in Jesus find no life. You, Unless you Partake in me, you have no life in yourselves. And in that sense, such ones are adversaries of God. Not that they're overt enemies who say, I hate this being called God and he can't tell me what to do. It can look very religious, it can look very pious, it can look very moral. But they're adversaries of God because of this issue of ultimately an idolatry a redefining, a rethinking. But now, because of what has come in the Messiah, this adversarial posture between God and people is heightened. It becomes consummately there. Of whom much is given, much is required. 
we're so thankful, and rightly so, to be post-Christ event people, to, be a, to have been born after the death and the resurrection of the Messiah and the outpouring of the Spirit. To be those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, to live in the fullness of the time. But the adversarial place in which human beings now stand in relation to God in light of the Messiah is infinitely greater. The dynamic of human alienation, of death, adversarial relationship with God, that's always existed. In that sense, humans have always faced the consuming fire of God. And that idea of God as a consuming fire, it's a purgative idea, purgation, purging. God is a consuming fire. What they face is the, the, the fury of a fire by which God will consume the adversaries. It's this idea of a purging and a, and a restoring of all things to be what God would have it to be. All adversarial Adversity in that sense, all opposition, all contrariety, contrariness, contradiction. All of that is consumed in the fire of God's purging. And in that, in one sense, all human beings have always faced that consuming fire of God's determination to purge and renew his creation. Well, what's different now? What's different now since the coming of Christ is the full revelation of God's person, love, and purpose in the Messiah himself. Think again what Jesus said in the upper room. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Is he saying there were no sinners in the world until he spoke to people? No, that's not what he's saying. He's talking specifically about Israel, but he's saying they would not be guilty of the sin of unbelief that has me as its object if I hadn't come and spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. They have hated both me and my father. They think they love the father but they've hated the Father by hating me. If I hadn't come and done among them works that no one has ever done, works that actually testify truthfully to the God they think they know and serve, if I hadn't come and done those works, they would not be guilty of sin in that sense. But now they have seen the works and they have hated both me and my Father. There's a heightened culpability because now in the Messiah, there's no place to hide from the full disclosure of who this God is, what he's about, what he's done, what it is to be human, what is his purpose for the world, where is all of this going? There's no place to hide. There's no realm of ignorance. Can't hide behind the shadows. Can't hide behind the time of preparation. Can't hide behind partiality. Partial. Greater revelation, greater disclosure, greater knowledge brings greater guilt in unbelief and thus greater condemnation. Jesus, in talking about the servants and the master, he said, the servant who didn't know his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with fewer blows. 
the one who knew the master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with many blows. And without going down the path of, you know, how is this all going to play out? He's making the point that greater understanding brings greater culpability. Of whom much is given, much is required. And that's what he says in that context in Luke 12. So there's a present consequence and there's a future consequence. An ultimate reckoning that will have a severity to it because all of the truth of God has been made known in the Messiah. Well, the second piece of this then is the way in which the writer shows the severity of this. And I've already kind of hinted at this, but he does it really in three ways. First, he does it by setting this alongside Israel's history and its history of unbelief. Secondly, by showing that the severity of this warning is determined by and defined by the Christ event, the person and the work of the Messiah and what's come in him. And then it's thirdly seen in the response of God to those who fail to heed this warning. Well, he says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much sorer punishment? This is a comparative. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. But again, saints, hopefully we know this, but the law of Moses was God's Torah to Israel. It was his self-disclosure. It wasn't just a to-do list. It was God's disclosure of himself by which he established and prescribed his covenant relationship with Israel as covenant son, servant, disciple, and witness. Torah was revelation. It was disclosure. It was instruction in that sense. It was the revealed truth that defined Israel's understanding of itself, its understanding of itself in relation to God, who God is, what he's about, what he's doing. And Torah, in that sense, established their responsibility to him. That's why law-breaking was treated as both unbelief and relational infidelity. It wasn't, here's a rule that you didn't keep. It was infidelity, relational unfaithfulness, and unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews here is dealing specifically with transgression of the law of Moses in terms of capital offense. Whoever violated the law of Moses dies without mercy. Well, that wasn't true in every instance. There were lots of transgressions of the law of Moses that weren't capital offenses, right? So he's specifically pointing to capital transgression. And he associates it with, again, a, a, a verdict and a sentence that's carried out on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if you go back and you look uh, in the Pentateuch to how that was dealt with, there are all sorts of capital crimes, many of them specific violations of the Decalogue, and the sentencing did require the testimony of witnesses, but there's only one instance where a specific violation is explicitly in the text associated with death on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and I won't go back and read it, but it's in Deuteronomy 17. 
And what is the crime there? Idolatry. Wandering away from Israel's God. Deuteronomy 17. Such a one will be put to death under the testimony of two or three witnesses, departing from Israel's God. Now, I don't know that the writer had that specifically in mind, but he does bring in this issue of dying without mercy under the testimony of two or three witnesses, and that would certainly, I think, take his readers who knew their scripture back to that idea. And it certainly fits well that he had that in mind because he's very much talking about that dynamic of departing from the living God. And again, as I said, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, specifically this capital sin, this capital crime of despising the living God and his truth, which now has become yes and amen in the messianic son. So here's the point. If the Israelite children of the covenant died without compassion... Not that God isn't compassionate, not that he's not merciful, but there was no mercy extended to these individuals. If they died without mercy when they departed from Yahweh, as he had revealed himself through the shadowy and preparatory revelation of Torah and the prophets, what outcome should be expected for those who depart from him in the light of his consummate self-disclosure and consummate self-giving, consummate mercy, consummate compassion in the incarnate Torah, the word become flesh. And that would have had profound impact on these Hebrew readers, again, because they're thinking we've abandoned, we're being told we've abandoned Yahweh, we've abandoned his Torah. And the writer is saying, actually, you would be abandoning Yahweh and abandoning Torah by trying to go back. Because Torah has been embodied in Messiah, the word become flesh. The God of Israel is known in the Messiah and the Messianic work. To not hold fast to him in truth is to depart from the God of Israel, even if you go back and become the most devout Jew you ever were. So drawing from Israel's history and showing how even in that preparatory time, God was building the case for the culpability that would come when Messiah had come and done his work. And that leads us to the second piece here of how we see the severity, which is that it's determined by the person and the work of the Messiah and defined by the person and the work of the Messiah. In other words, the coming of Jesus has inaugurated a new and greater obligation of faith. Faith in the God of Israel is now faith in the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended Son. And therefore, it's established also an equally greater condemnation for unbelief. If we're going to go back and read the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, where God is standing against and condemning and exposing this thing called idolatry, now in the fullness of the times, idolatry has become a matter of one's failure to rightly discern and rightly respond to Jesus the Messiah. What you do with Jesus is the issue of your idolatry. 
Because there is no knowledge, there is no vital connection with the living God except in him. And the writer makes this clear in the sense that he says what this amounts to, this this apostasy in whatever sense, to whatever degree, he says it is a trampling underfoot of the Son of God. He doesn't say, well, you're you're treating the God of Israel badly. He says what this is, is trampling underfoot the Son of God, who is the express image of the invisible God, right? How did the writer begin in chapter 1? God, who in times past spoke in various ways, various times in the prophets, has in these last days spoken in Son, who is the brightness of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, who upholds all things, right? Trampling underfoot the one who is the express image of the living God. And that involves, he says, regarding, well, even if we don't understand that, it involves regarding as common. It's not so much really the idea of unclean in the sense of defiled, but unclean in the sense of not sacred, not consecrated. Common is the idea. Profane. We use profane more in a moral sense, but in the biblical sense, things that were not absolutely consecrated to God were profane. They were for common use, common interaction. Everything that was consecrated to the Lord was holy to him, and you couldn't touch it, or you couldn't hold it, or you couldn't even look at it. Dirty shovels that clean out ashes, you couldn't look at them because they were holy to the Lord. So this is the idea of of regarding, he says, the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified, viewing Jesus' death, his bloodletting, as just another human death of no greater significance than the death of any other human being. Regarding as common, just like any other human death, the blood that has renewed the covenant, as God said, with which Christ consecrated himself. People say, with which he is consecrated. Is he the the Hebrews? He the believer? He Christ himself? And the answer is both. It's because Christ consecrated himself. And this is, again, the high priestly prayer, right? For their sake I sanctify myself, that they would be sanctified in the truth. The blood of the renewed covenant is the way in which Jesus utterly consecrated himself to the Father for the sake of a human race that would be consecrated to his Father. And regarding that as common, setting that aside as of no significance. And he says, thirdly, in that way, it insults the spirit of grace. He's already said that it's by that it it was by the the spirit that he offered himself up without blemish to God. To trample underfoot the Son of God, to regard as common the blood of his sacrifice that renewed the covenant is ultimately to insult the spirit of grace because that work, that priestly work, was accomplished in the power of the Spirit exercised on behalf of God's intent of grace. 
That's the way in which this is an insulting of the spirit of grace. All of this points back again to Christ's work and what it is that he accomplished and what it is to be a sharer in him. So the severity is shown by setting it in the light of Israel's own history, by setting it in the light of the Christ event itself and what it represents in relation to him to wander away. And then lastly, in ter- it's, the severity is shown in terms of God's response. As I said, idolatry has now become an offense against the one true God who is fully real, uh, revealed in the person and the work of the Son in the power of the Spirit. It is idolatry in its consummate form. It is idolatry in its consummate form, and therefore it is idolatry in its most culpable form. And that's why it carries the most severe sentence. Again, Israel had only a shadowy, partial, preparatory vision of God and how God was going to do all of this that he said he was going to do. And God hadn't granted them the renewed heart that he had promised All the way back, Deuteronomy 30, the day will come, I will give you a a renewed heart. Ezekiel 36, I'll take the heart of stone, I'll give you a heart of flesh. That work hadn't been done, and yet God gave them no excuse. They died without mercy under the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why? Even though it was partial, even though it was shadowy, even though it was preparatory, God had revealed himself to Israel in truth, and therefore their unbelief was against the truth. Yes, partial. Yes, shadowy. But nonetheless, God had revealed himself and made himself known in truth, in his words and in his faithful deeds that upheld the truth of what he had said. God spoke and he acted in a way that ratified and certified what he had done. And the significant, or, or what he had said, that served the cause of what he had promised. So, if God granted no mercy for idolatry in the time of preparation and shadow, what of those who stray from him in the light of full self disclosure and full self giving in the Messiah? He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the context in which we have to understand those statements. And, you know, as I said at the outset, these are very fearful, frightening things to think about. And often you, you see when people deal with this, because it is, it's, it's like going to a funeral and people want to say, oh, he's just in a better place or whatever. You know, we don't want to deal with the reality. And there's a gravity here that we want to slip away from. We want to change the subject. And people will often do that by turning this into a discussion of, of hell or the relation of, of, of uh, you know, uh, faith and works in salvation or eternal security or, you know, um, the atonement, or whatever it happens to be, so that we don't have to actually look at this and own it and apply it to our, ourselves. And throughout church history, the church has done this, you know, in developing its doctrine of repentance and how it plays into faith and where works fit into all of that. And it's a way, in a sense, for us to elude 
taking ownership of this for ourselves. But there are at least three things that we can clearly say that the writer's getting at here. The first is that he's affirming that people are capable of embracing Jesus with a clear and a thorough understanding and yet departing from him. You know, whatever we understand about total depravity, we've, we've got to put this in our pipe and smoke it. Paul, in his total depravity, was absolutely zealously devoted to the God of Israel. He was devoted to Israel's scriptures, Israel's God. He was devoted to Torah. And yet he was a blasphemer and a grievous offender. Whatever we think about depravity, we have to understand that people are capable of embracing Jesus with a clear and a thorough knowledge only to be able to fall away. Sometimes by renouncing him outright, but often, more often, I think, by reshaping, rethinking, refashioning, reworking, reimagining. The second thing that we can say about this passage is that the writer isn't talking about the universal Christian struggle of faith. I believe, help my unbelief. He's not talking about that universal struggle that we all have, wrestling with seeing in part, knowing in part, flawed understanding, partial understanding, immaturity, misdirected and misguided thoughts, affections. He's not talking about that. The issue isn't frailty and infirmity in our faith. We all have to own that. The issue is the the effective casting down of faith and departing from, effectively departing from the one who is the only proper object of faith. And this has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing even to do with doctrine per se. As Cliff reminded us, people can be very doctrinaire and they can be apostate. These kids go off to college, you know, even Christian colleges sometimes, and they take a philosophy class or a Christian, you know, history of religion class or whatever, and they get these professors who just completely dismantle them, take their head off. Because these guys know the scriptures. And these kids go in there knowing, well, Jesus died for my sins and I'm going to heaven. And these guys chew them up and spit them out. And they come out of there with their faith gone. This is not about frailty of faith, but it is about the effective setting aside or the departing from faith, faith in the Christ who is the true object. And if you put it in the, this Hebrews context, again, what these, pressure, what these Jews are being pressured with as Jewish followers of Jesus is the doubt of he's, maybe he's not the Messiah. Maybe you've missed it. You're actually departing from Yahweh. You're departing from his Torah. You're departing from his truth. 
Did the Lord really say? Is this really the way it is? And like I said, kids go off to Christian college and they get their heads handed to them. Really? What about this? What about that? What about that? Well, I don't know. I just know I'm going to heaven. And then the third thing is that the certainty, the severity, and the finality of this condemnation that the writer is warning about here speaks to the nature of the offense. This may be the toughest pill to swallow, but it speaks to the nature of the offense, not God's disposition towards certain people. This isn't a biblical proof text on reprobation or limited atonement. God's final condemnation, the, the, the terror of this, the severity of this, is not that it's directed towards people who have no share in the Christ event, in the person and the work of the Messiah, but those who stand in the midst of its intent and its efficacy. I'm not saying that they're saved, but the very fact of incarnation says that the Christ event pertains to everyone who can say, I'm a human being, right? Because he was born into, he took to himself our Adamic humanity. That's why Paul says, we know and are convinced that when Christ died, the one died, all died. I've said it before, the church father Gregory Nazianza said, the unassumed is the unredeemed. If Jesus was truly, if he truly took to himself our Adamic humanness and he put it to death, then he did that for every single human being. All died in him. God is indeed a consuming fire, but in the sense that he's determined to purge his creation of all defilement, all falseness, everything that contradicts. And so those who refuse to be part of this creational renewal that is in the new man, the Messiah, those who insist on defining themselves as human beings by themselves outside of the truth of what it is to be human in the Messiah... All of those will be consumed in that purging fire. You look again at Revelation 21 and 22, which which really end this, end what God has to say. And you see this image of, okay, how does this all play out? Well, the merging of heaven and earth. The new Jerusalem, the heaven, the God's dwelling place and the earthly dwelling place becoming one. And the angelic testimony is what? Now the dwelling of God is with men and they see his face, right? And his name is written on their foreheads. He's their God, they're his people. But he also says, this is in chapter 21 of Revelation. He who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and they are true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, 
the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, those, and the fundamental issue is the lie, a definition of human existence that is false. Their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. That is the second death. God will be done with everything that contradicts the truth. So it shows that the fire of God's final wrath falls on people, not because they have no part in Jesus' atoning work and its outcome, but precisely because they do. That's why they're so culpable. 1 says, God has taken the great positive decision for man. The decision of love translated into fact. He has once and for all given himself, and therefore the giving of himself in the Messiah, in the cross, when opposed by the will of man, inevitably opposes that will of man and is its judgment. God's self-giving, when it encounters opposition on the part of men, he says it opposes that opposition. God's self-giving opposes that opposition and is actually the judgment of that opposition. It is the positive will of God in loving humanity that becomes humanity's judgment when they refuse it. That then is the first thing we have to say, that Christ died for all humanity and no human being can undo or escape the fact that everyone has been died for and no one can evade or elude or avoid the fact that they are thus loved by God. Therefore, when they do the inconceivable thing in the face of that divine love, incarnate, manifest, demonstrated in the Christ event, In other words, they do the inconceivable thing in refusing it, defying it, turning away from it. That unavoidable self-giving of God, that self-giving that they cannot avoid, is their condemnation. It would be better that Christ never came than that men should refuse him. You see, this is a far more... Fiery, a far more troubling, a far, a far more terrible outcome than simply Jesus didn't die for all the list of bad things I did as a human being. I guess I'm, you know, he didn't die for my sins. The fact that he did, the fact that he put to death the humanness that we all know, that we all embrace, that we all insist on taking and living out ourselves, the fact that he condemned that and put it to death, and we say, no, I, you know, this is, this is what it is. That's infinitely worse. That's infinitely more frightening to endure the judgment of that, the opposition of God's redeeming, renewing, transforming love in the Messiah than simply, oh, he didn't die for my catalog of of bad behaviors. So these things then, saints, underscore that this warning about unbelief, and this is kind of how I want to end this, and it it again ties in very closely with what uh, Cliff was talking about and even what we were talking about last hour. 
The issue here in this warning is not so much what we know. Gee, I'm being warned about unbelief, so I I better make sure that I've got my doctrine right. This isn't so much about what we know, but about how we know what we know. What is the nature, the source, the substance of our knowledge and our faith? Because everybody knows. Everybody has some sort of knowledge of something, right? This is an epistemological question. Epistemology has to do with, again, the nature, the source, the substance of our knowledge and our faith. And I think particularly in our time, we were talking a little bit about postmodernism last hour, but as much as we point at it as a 20th century kind of aberration, it fills our culture and it fills the church. A postmodern epistemology, big words, but it's simply that knowledge is personal and subjective. If you want to put it in the way that we hear it, you know, in, in our culture, you have your truth, I have my truth. It's Pilate, what is truth? And Christians all, you know, my God is this. I think Jesus is this. This is what I think God ought to do. This is what I think is is true or right or good. I would never be a part of a congregation that says those sorts of things. God is love, isn't he? Or the opposite, God is wrath. He's picked, picked them out. You, you get to go into heaven, you get to go into hell, right? We, we, we have our ideas. It's all personal, it's all subjective. For many other Christians, and this is probably more common in the circles we run in, epistemology is dogmatic. It's not postmodern in that whatever's in my head is what is true. It's dogmatic. It's tied to traditions, to confessions, to systems. If I want to know the answer to something, I go to the confession. If I, well, of course it's this way because I'm a dispensationalist or I'm a covenantalist or I'm a this or I'm a Lutheran or you know, this is what Luther said or what Calvin said or whatever. For our faith's saints to stand the test of life in this world. And we talk a lot about what's happening in our country. For our faith to stand the test of challenges to it. And they come in a myriad of ways. It doesn't have to be imprisonment and all of that. Day by day, circumstances, situations challenge our faith. Is God good? Does he care? Is he there? For our faith to stand the test of life in this world, it must be firmly set on the Messiah as the scriptures disclose him. As he is the apex of God's presence, purpose, and work in the world. It's not just enough to say we have to have a faith that's grounded in the scriptures. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. We can all make the Bible say whatever we want it to say, right? Here's a verse, there's a verse. That's not what I'm saying. I've read this quote before, and interestingly, to show, again, 
this is a statement by Karl Barth, and it's part of why he's been regarded as a neo-Orthodox who doesn't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. But listen to what he has to say. What counts in identifying the true church in relation to the scriptures is that the Bible speaks and it's heard. That it speaks and it's heard. Not that we tell it, we dictate to it. The Bible cannot do this merely as the book of the law of church, the church's faith and order. And he's, he's coming from a German national church standpoint. But, you know, it's that canon of scripture is, is, is the rule of the order of our faith and our practice, a handbook for living. He says it cannot be, it cannot be seen to speak and be heard if it's viewed as the book of the law of the church's faith and order. To the degree that it's treated as such, it is in fact controlled by men. It becomes the handbook that is the servant of our agenda. Like the apostles, it does not will to rule but to serve. And it is where it is allowed to serve that it really does rule. Because then it's not betrayed to any human control. It is not a prescript either for doctrine or for life. It is a witness and as such it demands attention, respect and obedience. The obedience of the heart, the free and only genuine obedience. What the scripture wants from the church, what it impels the church towards, and it is the Holy Spirit moving in it who does this, what the Scripture wants from the church is agreement with the direction in which it itself is looking. And the direction in which it looks is to the living Jesus Christ. As scripture stirs up and invites and summons and impels the church to look in the same direction, then there takes place the work of the spirit of scripture who is the Holy Spirit. Scripture then works in the service of its Lord and the church becomes and is actually apostolic and therefore the true church. And I've put it this way many times. If we're interacting with this book and we're not seeking through prayer, through meditation, beseeching God through the Spirit to cause us to grow more thoroughly to know and to commune with and to be transformed by the living, resurrected Messiah who is our life, then we're misusing it. I don't care if we've mastered the doctrine of the atonement. I don't care if we've mastered some view of the sovereignty of God or, or the doctrine of hell or anything else. If this is not being used by the Spirit to form and perfect the life of Christ in us, then we're misusing it. And that's what I mean when I say in order for us to be a people who will stand the test of faith, idolatry is departure from the Messiah. We must be a people who are seeking, striving, clinging to be conformed to the truth of the Messiah as he is the apex of God's own self-disclosure, his person, his will, his work his ultimate end for the world. We have to be people of the book in the sense that we submit to its mind and its message. Not, we don't make it submit to our agenda. Theologically, doctrinally, practically, morally, whatever it happens to be. 
And saints, the less that we are bound to the Messiah in truth, the more easy it is for us to stray from him. The less we're truly bound to him in a living way, the easier it is to stray from him. And the easier it is to stray from him and not even know we're straying from him. The easier it is to succumb, to use the writer's language, the easier it is to succumb to the willful sin of unbelief and never even know it. This is what Jesus meant when he said, and again, we get all wrapped around the axle of eternal security and works and faith and all that, but when he said the one who endures to the end will be saved, that's what he's getting at. There is a walking of this out. And there is always the possibility for all of us of walking away from the Messiah. And being shown that all along we never really knew him. Like I said, you can know him, you can, you can have, have a thoroughgoing knowledge of the Messiah and even embrace him and still end up falling away. That's what the writer is saying. So it's not that we can never have any assurance. But make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control. In this way, you will keep the knowledge of the Messiah from being unproductive and unfruitful. And there are even those saints, and with this I'm done, who in their salvation will suffer the loss of everything. Paul says, when the, the fiery zeal of God is manifested against your life, it's all burnt up and all that's left is just your bare salvation. Now, what that looks like, I can't say in the ultimate sense, but there is a significance in how we live. It's not just this once saved, always saved. We can find ourselves suffering loss. And the truth is all of us will suffer a degree of loss because none of us is faithful in the way that we really ought to be. None of us. But there will be those who will find themselves actually on the outside. And there will be those who find themselves just getting through with their bare salvation. And to understand all the privilege and all, you know, we've been given everything through the true knowledge of him who called us according to his own glory and grace. And to be totally unfaithful with all of that. As difficult as our times are, saints, we have more privilege, more opportunity, more resources than any other generation in the history of the church, in the history of the world. We're not spending every waking minute gathering food, processing food, cooking food, doing this, doing that. You know, our lives have a lot of ease in them. What have we done with the Messiah and his life? And I'm not trying to guilt us into anything. I'm hoping that we will see what Paul said was a glimpse of the glory of God that is in the face of Christ and that that will drive us. It doesn't matter whether you're a butcher or baker, candlestick maker or whatever. And this isn't just the pastors. What a privilege we have. What a privilege. Father, I pray that you would convict each one of us. 
There is infirmity, there is weakness, there is frailty in all of us, but there is also idolatry in all of us. There's not a one of us whose, whose love and zeal and devotion to the resurrected and glorified Messiah is as it ought to be. We don't pursue Christiformity with all that is within us at all times. We may love doctrine. We may love figuring things out and tying up our doctrine in a neat little package. But when it comes to truly communing, truly wrestling, truly striving, being a contemplative, worshipful, wrestling, grappling, people who who strive to truly know and be devoted to Christ. That's a labor of time and effort and prayer and quietness. And I pray, Father, that you would help us all to be faithful. It is truly those who endure to the end who will be saved. And we do trust that you who began this good work will complete it, and yet it does require 100% of us. You don't work in a vacuum. You don't work in a vacuum. Father, may we be faithful stewards of this immeasurable trust. And may we use all of the resources that you've given to us in this life as Americans in the 21st century to be faithful. You do require more of us in many ways than you require of people who are in Iran or North Korea your saints who don't have the same resource and liberty and facility that we have. And yet it's so easy for us to squander it. Our houses are full of Bibles. We never look at them. Our days are full of lots of free time, but we don't pray. We don't seek to serve. We don't seek to grow. Fill our hearts. Cause them to burst with a a new and a fresh heavenly vision. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.